Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. It's December 3rd, 2020, and today we're talking with Brian Wilchin, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Psychology and Center for Neuroscience at UC Davis. Hi, Brian. Hi. Brian's lab studies the cellular and molecular mechanisms of memory consolidation and retrieval in the hippocampus and neocortex. His work carefully dissects components of this memory network by recording and manipulating spatial and contextual behaviors with a formidable array of opto and chemogenetic tagging and simulation tools in transgenic mice. So today in our Zoom, we're joined by fellow learning uh, and memory behavior and circuit specialists, Isabel Musio. Hi, Isabel. Hello. We've got Tony Burgos Robles. Hi, Tony. Hello. And Matt Wannett. Matt. Brian, you've spent a lot of time thinking about um, the hippocampus and its role in memory networks that underlie memory consolidation and retrieval. And in the, in the last few years, you've shown with spatial and temporal specificity that area CA1 is required for reinstating patterns of cortical neuron activity associated with learning and retrieving contextual memory. And through careful circuit manipulations, you've shown that there's are actually a lot more complicated dynamics at play in the cortical hippocampal memory network that depend on the source and the timing of inhibition and excitation in the CA1 network. And that's your most recent paper. So there, there's so many interesting points of discussion on tools and tech in that work that, that you guys should by all means pick up and run with at any point. But it seems like a really interesting component of that work is this idea that, that uh, fast inhibition or the there's a sort of a, a differential temporal component to inhibition. So fast optical inhibition um, disrupts memory while slower inhibition through chemogenetics leaves network retrieval processes intact. So can you just kind of say something about that work and maybe, and that's largely centered on retrieval and maybe comment on how it connects to some of your larger ideas about contextual binding as, as the machinery of consolidation. Yeah. I mean, I would, so the, the you're right the the stuff that uh uh that that you're uh, discussing has to do with memory retrieval and how uh you, you know in some cases uh other brain regions can compensate if the hippocampus goes offline uh particularly when the hippocampus goes offline slowly uh that seems to uh create a situation where uh, other brain regions can take over which means they they do contain some of the information that's needed, uh, at least for, you know, uh, pretty basic, uh, fear memories, like just recognizing the context. Um, and if the hippocampus goes offline very quickly, uh, you know, no one has time <laughs> to, uh, pick up and, 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 uh, and cover for the loss of the hippocampus. So, uh, but that's, it's not confined to retrieval. Actually, um, some of the first stuff I worked on in graduate school, uh, dealt with learning and, uh, the thing that had come up in uh, the lab that I was in was that you often didn't need the hippocampus for learning either. So in some situations, uh, for example, if you are to lesion or damage the hippocampus, uh, let the animals recover for a week or so, there's some things they can do perfectly fine that you might, you know, like contextual learning that we didn't think they'd be able to do. But again, if the hippocampus went offline rapidly during the learning, they were impaired. So it seems like both during learning and during retrieval, there are these, you know, interesting interactions taking place between the hippocampus and other brain regions. And depending on, 
you know, how quickly those interactions are occurring or how, you know, prolonged uh, the hippocampus was offline, um, you can often learn without the hippocampus and retrieve information without the hippocampus, which, which we find interesting because, like I said, we think it means that uh, these other brain regions uh, have sufficient information to retrieve at least some aspects of the memory. It's interesting that uh, what you mentioned, because the data of paper that was published a few years ago, show the same effect for the remote memories. Yeah. So um, maybe hmm. you want to discuss a little bit that idea, but uh, it's interesting to put things in context that it's not just learning or retrieval yeah. of, of a memory, but also the remote memory that can be affected by these compensatory mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, right, the... <laughs> You ever work in a lab that, uh, you know, the, well, the animal is, is uh, very smart and crafty, uh, which means their brain is very smart and crafty, and they will find other ways to learn, right, if they need to. And you see it all the time, even with, you know, human uh, patients who have damage to some parts of the brain, uh, you get compensation, and sometimes other regions can take over and uh, do the learning. They usually, you know, you you have to probe very carefully to find that, you know, often the learning isn't the same, right? It's different in some way. So the other regions are, you know, they have access to or are, are learning a little bit differently than, let's say, the hippocampus might. Um, but if the task is to survive uh, under a lot of conditions, they can they can figure out how to do it, how to remember the context well enough to know that it's bad. They can learn, you know, different strategies to obtain food if they need to. So, you know, if anything, it's 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 um, it seems to me that the the rule is more that uh, the brain is pretty flexible and uh, can adapt. And most of the time in the lab, that's a problem for us, so we try to get rid of that. <laughs> but in reality, I think it's it's uh, it's a it's a, an adaptation. Um, and sometimes we talk about it. Uh, it was actually one of my favorite exam questions to give grad students was, um, so we talk about Carl Lashley, who was one of the first people to look for memory in the brain. And oftentimes it's talked about as if he's kind of like this terrible failure because he never found memory in the brain. So we'll say, okay, to the students, what is, what is it, what did Lashley believe and what did he get wrong and how do we know it was wrong? And they answer that just fine. And then you ask, okay, but what did he get right? <laughs> and I think the, that usually they don't like that. <laughs> the students find that challenging to answer but i think one of the things he found is that the brain is incredibly adaptive and he had trouble finding memory because the animals could find other ways to do the tasks that they needed to yeah that's true so okay sorry um it's a very intriguing finding and it brings me back to several studies in other brain regions um all that also participate in fear conditioning, for example, in context, in not in contextual fear conditioning, but in auditory fear conditioning, in which you can even lesion the amygdala, and somehow animals are able to learn. Of course, you know, like it depends, you know, how much of the amygdala you can remove. But for example, if you remove the entire basolateral complex uh, with a lesioning uh, technique. Animals still can use the lateral amygdala <laughs> to still put together the information, the sensory information, and do the uh, proper encoding. But again, you know, if you do this um, uh, temporal inactivation with drugs or of the genetics, you see 
huge impairments that are not observable with lesion. So it brings me back to this um, phenomenon of recovery of function. Mm -hmm. People tended to um, to talk a lot when uh, we used to do a lot of lesioning studies. Yes. And yeah. I'm wondering, um, you know, like I think you touched base on, on this a little bit already, but how you fit this model of uh, recovery of function into into your uh, some of your studies. Yeah, I mean, I would, so after I uh, had left uh, the lab and graduate school, where we were trying to figure out uh, how animals were able to learn context theory without a hippocampus, right? That was our question. And we never fully answered it, but the strategy that they were using for animals well, maybe it's the rhinal cortex because it has a lot of the same information. Um, but subsequently, they found that uh, at least one area that seemed to take over was the medial prefrontal cortex. So the lab had found that if you if you lesion the hippocampus, they could learn, but not if you inactivated the medial PFC. So it seemed to be that somehow, and we don't know the mechanism, uh, without a hippocampus, the medial prefrontal cortex uh, is able to uh, take over and compensate uh, and learn that information. And uh, Ray Kessner had found similar things uh, with the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus in, in some of his spatial learning tasks, where if they only had to remember for a short period of time, they could use either the hippocampus or the prefrontal cortex. So you take one out, right? It's like whack-a-mole. Take one out and the other one pops up and does it. Uh, but you had to really stretch the circumstances to find that uh, the PFC couldn't learn over very long intervals like the hippocampus was able to or longer intervals. So it's one of those things where I think you got to uh, really get in there and try to, uh, you know, understand the behavior, understand the strategies are, that the animals are using, develop tasks to pick up on those strategies. And then you'll start to see that um, the brain's probably doing something much more interesting than <laughs> than we than we thought initially. Which it's not right; it's not binary. It's either the hippocampus or nothing else. But rather, these these systems are interacting constantly, and there are conditions under which they they can they can sort of help each other out. So, I mean, you one really interesting thing about that study is that it, you've also just looked at the level of the network. Right. So mm -hmm. direct hyperpolarization of pyramidal cells had no effect, but inhib inhibiting them through the through the GABA, through the inner neuron network had a completely disruptive effect on memory. Right. So it seems like there are some clues there about inputs. And I mean, that that seems or is that just a trick of the the fact that you were doing things with these viral tools or what do you how do you, what yeah. do you make of that? Well, I mean, I think. Uh, yeah, in our, so we didn't do like the, the Goshen and Dysroth paper where they did either, uh, this acute optogenetic inhibition or they started the inhibition like 30 minutes before the memory test, right? And then they, I don't know, you have to try to imagine what the equivalent would be. I'm going to give you some memory test and I either shut the hippocampus off right when you're trying to retrieve the information or I do it when you're out in the waiting room and you have 30 minutes or an hour and you're like, God, this is weird. <laughs> I just don't feel the same. <laughs> I don't have a hippocampus. Uh, but once the, you know, uh, that there's sort of like a resettling in, I guess, of the networks that uh, they're like, okay, we don't have a hippocampus. Now that input is gone. 
Uh, we still have problems to do. We still have things to do. And then you interrogate memory. Sometimes you'll find that that information is in there and you don't need the hippocampus to get it out. But yeah, like I said, in, in this particular case, in the, in the, uh, uh, Goshen and Diceroth had used opto either acute or prolonged. We had two different tools. So, you know, you could always say, well, maybe there's something very different about the dread, the way that they inhibit compared to the way the opto tools inhibit. So we would like to go back and use the same tool and, and do like Goshen and, and dice roth and show that you get the same thing it really has to do with timing and less to do with this so that was also a timing effect there wasn't an acute yeah. uh, okay got it Super. i have a question for brian and um, this could be related to differences in tools but um today in your talk you were showing how the the cells that express cfos that some people call engram cells but let's call them CFOS expressing cells are really important for the retrieval of the fear memory. I want you to discuss a little bit the differences between your study and the Ramirez et al. study from the Tonegawa lab, because in that study that made the news, they were finding that the CFOS expressing cells in the dentate gyros mm -hmm. were the ones that actually were important for the retrieval of the fear memory. In fact, when they did the manipulation in CA1 and tried to cre recreate mm -hmm. the artificial memory in CA1, they couldn't, they didn't work. It was in mm -hmm. the dentate gyros, which is the input station. So I wanted to know if you... Um, could comment on the differences between that study and yours and what your thoughts are, if you yeah, have any thoughts. Essentially, uh, we essentially uh, find the same thing uh, that Steve uh, found in uh, CA1, which is that uh, when you stimulate at 20 hertz, it doesn't work. You can't get, you can't get memory retrieval. Uh -huh. uh, in fact, we can show in some of our experiments that it's disruptive um, and I'll tell you, it's kind of a, a funny story, but I had mentioned that I was, uh, I was working on these ideas when I was at Virginia about, okay, we need to find, is there a way we can identify these cells? And like I said, uh, John Kozowski had published this immediate early gene work and we thought, oh, immediate early genes, maybe that's a way to, you know, get at these cells, you know, manipulate them in some way, just the ones that we're interested in. And so we were putting those ideas together and figuring out the optogenetic tools. And I invited Matt Wilson out and I uh, sat down at breakfast with him and I was explaining to what we were going to do. And, uh, and he said, Oh God, don't do stimulation. That'll never work. He goes, if you stimulate CA1, it's going to screw up everything. And so we're like, Oh, <laughs> and so we, uh, I was like, okay, yeah, we were a little bit worried about it because it's not, you know, physiological, right? It's artificial stimulation and you have all these beautiful, temporal patterns of activity in CA1 when the animals are learning things. And now we're just going to come in with a sledgehammer and turn all these cells on synchronously. And we thought, okay, you're right. That probably won't work. So we went and did inhibition. Uh, and then uh, Steve will, Ramirez will uh, you know, openly in his talk say that they were trying to target CA1 and they missed. Uh, and they got into the dentate gyrus and then it worked. And so, um, one question that you know, we've thought about that, you know, how that could be possible is it, you know, one possibility is that there's pretty sparse coding in the dentate gyrus compared to CA1. So when we do learning tasks, we find that maybe 30 to 50% of CA1 neurons will be engaged. 
but in dentate, it's like one to 5% of the cell. So you're like, okay, maybe you're getting a small population. Maybe that's easier for the brain to interpret. Um, and then in addition, you have CA3 in between uh, dentate and CA1. And so we thought perhaps with a sparse population, and then you have CA3 with its recurrent collaterals, maybe CA3 can make enough sense out of the dentate stimulation, even though it's artificial, that by the time it gets to CA1, the, and it gets out to the rest of the brain, it can be interpreted in some way. And so, and we found that you can get the effects in dentate uh, as well, uh, like uh, the Ramirez data. Um, there's some, uh, one publication or two that says maybe four hertz works better in CA1, um, but we haven't tried uh, uh, that yet to simulate the these uh, CPOS positive cells and see if four hertz works. Um, but our initial idea was just that. It had something to do with sparse coding and CA3 being in the middle that allowed uh, uh, the brain to understand uh, what the you know artificial optogenetic manipulation was trying to say. That's quite interesting. Um, I actually had a question. Maybe this is something that you know bridges Isabel and Brian's um, work is, you know, when you're referring to the hippocampus here, you're you know predominantly talking about the dorsal hippocampus, and um, you, you've highlighted obviously that you know there's some challenges going you know targeting any ventral structure in the brain. But you know, is there evidence for a, a role of the ventral hippocampus in contextual fear conditioning? And are there parallels, differences? Yeah, you know, what, what you know, the compare and contrast. Uh, what, what is yeah. known? What's not known? <laughs> yeah. So the yeah, that's kind of thing. Um, for a while, uh, I were, you know, people would, uh, when they were talking about it, and you see this sometimes even now in papers, they'll talk about dorsal as like the cognitive part of the hippocampus and the ventral as the emotional, um, part. And so people would often think, oh, the ventral is, is doing context fear and tone fear and all that. But it turns out that both are involved. And so, uh, a lot of the early manipulations, you know, let's say in the Morris water maze was a spatial task. They were getting deficits with the, uh, manipulation of dorsal, but not ventral. And so they said, so that seemed to fit with this maybe cognitive emotional difference. You need dorsal hippocampus to learn these spatial tasks. And then with context fear conditioning, like I told you today, Gene Sok Kim and others, you know, they just did the same manipulations that people had done in the water maze and in the dorsal hippocampus. It also wipes out context fear, even though context conditioning has kind of, you know, like both an emotional and this sort of spatial or contextual component. But you also need the ventral hippocampus uh, to learn context fear. So that's uh, one difference between that and, and water maze, which uh, the spatial learning, this isn't, you know, not completely true because there are some ventral studies, but uh, that the dorsal hippocampus seems to be more important for the spatial learning, um, not so much ventral, at least when the spatial learning, sorry, no, Isabel, <laughs> correct me here, when the spatial learning uh, is very precise and you're asking the animal to maybe remember uh, a precise location. But when you get to context fear condition, you need both the dorsal and the ventral hippocampus. And we think part that's partially because the ventral hippocampus is the gateway to structures like the amygdala or medial prefrontal cortex, which are going to modulate the fear response. I would like to add that the ventral hippocampus, in terms of connectivity, it doesn't receive visual input, so pre-processed spatial information. It gets it through intra-hippocampal intra projections or projections from the lateral entorhinal cortex. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
We really believe that there is integration of information along the longitudinal hippocampal pathway, but the ventral region is the one that is connected, as Brian said, to other regions that control emotional memory, such as the amygdala and prefrontal cortex mm -hmm. or the, uh, hypo the hypothalamus. Mm -hmm. So, um, but somehow the ventral hippocampus integrates contextual information from the dorsal via intrahippocampal projections. So right. it, there is a need for both areas. And, you know, maybe one has higher weight on emotional processes, uh, emotional processes due to the connectivity, but both regions are necessary. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Salma. Um, that's, a, that's a good segue for my next question, which was, you know, Brian, in, in, within your studies, have you looked at any uh, patterns of activity in downstream brain regions every time you do your dorsal hippocampal manipulations? And if so, do the patterns in the downstream brain regions correlate with what you see at the level of dorsal hippocampus? Yeah, we did look at the uh, basal amygdala, and you get uh, disruptions there as well. So when, uh, so even though we're way up in dorsal CA1, which doesn't send a direct projection to the amygdala, when we manipulated the CFOS positive cells there, we also disrupted reactivation in the basal amygdala. And then in the Ramirez and Tanagawa paper, they they had also found that when they stimulated these cells in dentate, they could get uh, activation of the basal amygdala as well. So, um, so in our case, we were in CA1, so it wouldn't have a direct projection, but there are many indirect projections to get to uh, the amygdala. I, I have a question about context, encoding context. So context is sort of a more diffuse, context sort of run into one another, and they're sort of associated with a time-locked event in, in the trace, I mean, in the fear conditioning that you guys mm -hmm. do. How does how does one actually study context in a way that you, so for example, how do you look at contextual interference, for example, because that's presumably, you know, a, a, a big part of, of, of forgetting, apparently, yeah. I mean, according to some of the stuff that's been written about. No, there's definitely right. There's some really interesting uh, work out, out there on uh, interference. The, um, a lot of the human studies, like you had mentioned in the uh, review paper, where they talk a lot about interference and how uh, contextual information, right, could either get bound to, or information could be found in the same context, or if there's a new context afterwards, right, you could get competition. How do you study that in the lab? Yeah, so That's for us, be... with, uh, yeah, with, with the mice, um, well, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because the, you know, for the longest time, um, you know, people would do something like lever press suppression to study fear conditioning. So tone would come on and they stop pressing the lever, but they, you know, found out that the animals would also be scared of the box as well. But because they didn't know exactly what cues were there and they were diffuse, they just called it context, right? And not that many people studied it for exactly the reason that you're saying is because, you know, you don't know what the stimulus really is and it's, you don't have control over it very well, at least not temporally. Uh, and how they sample it. And so, um, but, uh, uh, Bob Bowles, who was Michael uh, Fanzel's supervisor at Washington and others, uh, began to study context conditioning. And you're right. It, it is tricky to, uh, you know, figure out 
uh, or dissociate all of the elements of the context. But interestingly, um, you might not have to because the animal kind of does it for you. And so what I mean by that is um, there's this interesting phenomenon where if you take a rat or a mouse and you put it into the chamber and you deliver the aversive stimulation, the foot shock, right away uh, within like five seconds, um, you can take them out and bring them back later and they act like they've never been fear conditioned before. They explore like it's a brand new place. But so if you, however, in another group, if you pre-expose them to the chamber a day before, nothing happens in there. You just let them explore. Then you bring them back and, and give them shock after five seconds. They learn perfectly well. So what that seems to suggest is that the animal has to build this representation of the environment um, and put it together as some sort of, we used to call it a configural representation, um, and then have that available to them right away when they when they undergo conditioning. And Jerry Rudy did some really cool experiments where he would pre-expose animals to all the different elements in the box, just the grid, just the odor, so on and so forth. But none of that worked. They had to experience all of those elements together, and then they could learn the next day. So we think that, I mean, there are obviously components like the odor, which is uh, salient, the grid, the geometry of the box and cues, but any one of those cues doesn't seem to control the behavior very well. Um, the animal seems to sort of automatically uh, uh, form this sort of configured representation of the context. Oh, maybe this goes a little bit sort of full circle, but um, you know, uh, the contextual fear conditioning and you know the uh, you know the, the brain regions that are responsible for it. Uh, how important is it that the aversive stimulus or the stimulus you're using is, say, a foot shot? Um, you, know, you gave a shout out to Gene Sok Kim in your talk, and you know, he's, he's also known uh, for the Robo Gator and you know, other sort of aversive stimuli. And I guess um, you know, when we first were talking about how you know, other brain regions can sort of compensate if you take one offline, and I guess you know, how much is you know, what, what you've identified with the, the dorsal hippocampus when the aversive stimulus is foot shot? Do you believe or is it known that this generalizes to other sort of, you know, maybe ecologically relevant stimuli, you know, whether it's, you know, looming disc, you know, barn owls, yeah. robotator, you know, take your pick of. Yeah, we've done, we did all of them. <laughs> uh, there's a, uh, it's been sort of a push to, um, from funding agencies to use more, uh, you know, what they call naturalistic stimuli, like you mentioned, the, uh, you know, fox urine, the looming disc. Robogator, etc. Um, and we've used all of them. The problem is, um, it's kind of like putting an owl on your house and the birds within two days are all sitting on the owl. They learn that too. And they, uh, so we did some Robogator stuff with the mice. And initially they're kind of scared, but if nothing really happens, they're crawling all over the thing. You know, within a few minutes, we did the looming disc. The first time they saw it, it was scary and then they didn't care anymore. And so, uh, even though you could say that, you know, in some way foot shock is artificial, uh, it is a painful, you know, scary event and it engages their natural defensive systems fantastically. Um, and I think the, this goes back to your question about the hippocampus. I actually think that's one reason that uh, there were a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, effects that people were finding with context fear conditioning was that because the learning is so rapid and a lot of times with fear conditioning, just a single trial 
and they learn fantastically. Uh, with a lot of the uh, appetitive or reward tasks that we've done, you have to do a lot of trials before you start seeing the learned behavior. And it seems like when you start doing lots and lots of trials, you don't need the hippocampus anymore. And so I think it's kind of an accident that, you know, fear conditioning works so well and you get these big hippocampal deficits, but I think it's because it's it's so fast. Now, Richard Morris has done these single learning trial tasks, like the event arena where they, you know, he has to give them a lot of pre-training so they know the basic rules, right? He calls it a schema, but then they can learn uh, if you give them that, they can learn in a single trial, and that depends on that's repetitive, but it depends on the hippocampus. So I think the the rapidity, uh, the speed at which you learn, has a lot to do with it. And most of the time, right in the human studies, they're looking at episodic memories. They've only happened to you one time. You didn't get 600 trials pressing a lever. Uh, like I said, the the rest of the brain will figure that out if the animal's hungry, <laughs> even if it doesn't have a hippocampus. <laughs> well. I think that the, the question about the hippocampus and the role that it plays in context is referring a little bit to the previous question. I, my mind kept thinking about that. Even if you have a, have a paradigm that is simple, like classical fear conditioning with shock, it's complex because there is this idea that each time that you retrieve the memory, the context changes because time keeps passing by. And that, gave, you know, um, to the idea that uh, there is reconsolidation as well. Yeah. Each time that you retrieve the memory, the memory becomes labile, right? Because the context changes whenever you retrieve the memory. So there is an, a window of opportunity to modify the memory. So um, I wonder if you have thought at all about this idea in the context of your experiments or is something that you haven't explored or how do you yes. deal with the fact that the context is not something that is constant, but changes over time for the animal? Yeah. I mean, so that is, uh, yeah, that's right. So that's similar uh, to what someone was saying, I think with the contextual binding uh, idea, which is that, um, you know, that the, the, the the context that you're in, so that's your, you know, is we typically there's these event boundaries, like you said. We have, okay, I walked into this room, then a bunch of stuff happened, and then you're off into a new context afterwards. And so, you know, the context is uh, constantly shifting over time. And so it's, I think you're right that, well, first of all, we know that they can still retrieve information about the context, even along time later, and even though the context is, you know, not exactly the same as it was originally, and the animal's not exactly the same <laughs> as it was originally, but there's at least some elements of the context still there. However, we do see that um, a lot of the details uh, seem to get lost over time, and this is, again, not surprising. Uh, just think of your own memories, and, uh, you know, like, for example, uh, my wife and I were watching um, this documentary uh, the other night about the uh, Challenger shuttle. And I swore to her that I was, you know, in fourth grade in my classroom when it happened. And she's like, wait a minute, you were in sixth grade when that happened. And I was like, oh my God, my whole life. <laughs> I, I swore I was in my fourth grade classroom watching that on the television with the rest of the kids. And uh, I wasn't, <laughs> I was in sixth grade. So uh, the same thing happens with the, with, 
the animals in these experiments. And again, you have to sometimes, you know, they'll freeze even if it's a month later, they're scared. But if you start to ask them uh, to remember details of that uh, experience, uh, they forget those. So a lot of the context, a lot of the elements of the context seem to fade over time. But there's enough there that they're able to recognize this place and, and remember that it's that it's bad. So actually, maybe I'm misremembering uh, what you presented, but um, uh, but you had the experiment where I believe you were um, doing channel rhodopsin activation of the the cells that had been you know activated um, using your, your tet mice, and um, you put them into a new context and. You had periods of photostimulation and off, photostimulation and off. And one of the striking things about the data you show was it was a perfect sawtooth. Yeah. You know, I was actually expecting what, you know, Isabel, I think maybe was alluding to was the memory might have been more labile. And you would imagine you're in a new yeah. context. And I would expect over time that it would trail off. And yeah. maybe it was just the window of the data that you showed, but it seemed to be binary zero one zero one zero one. And there I didn't, didn't, I didn't think that would happen either. <laughs> Uh, I mean, emotional responses don't shut off that quick usually. So I didn't, yeah, that's a, I still don't quite understand how to explain why it is such a sawtooth function. It's not like they're going to forget that they were scared out of their mind just a few seconds ago. Um, and so, and even if you do other forms of conditioning, you know, like even with a tone, an auditory stimulus, you know, they'll freeze to it. And after it turns off, they don't just stop freezing right away. They still are like, whoa, what's going on? Is something bad going to happen? And uh, so it lingers for a while. Um, so, yeah, I, that's a really good question. And I don't have an answer for why when you stimulate in that way, there is such a dramatic shift back and forth between between behavior. Is it, maybe, maybe I misunderstood that, but isn't the premise of some of that study also that the CFOS tag cells are actually encoding that context and you're actually completely reinstating the context as well as the fear. Yeah, I, I think like uh, massing is the, um, so you're in this new place. They're not, at least not scared enough to start freezing initially. And then you stimulate and they freeze like gangbusters and it turns off. You would think they would say, oh, this place is bad now too. So you might you know, call it second order conditioning and Pavlovian terms, you would think now they start to say, well, I don't like this place either because I was just really scared in it, but they seem to not do that. Just they just start exploring and then they freeze and then they explore and then they freeze and they explore. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think so there's you know, no relearning uh, on the basis of that content. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of, in, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I don't know if it's because the, I mean, maybe it, it must have something to do with the fact that the stimulation is artificial, right? So I don't know what they're really remembering. They're not feeling the pain, right? <laughs> yeah, and they're not. I mean, so it's it, it has to be something with that artificial nature because usually if you do an experiment where, let's say, you know, a tone was paired with shock and then you paired that tone with the context, they would show some fear to the, the context. And um, but in that case, they didn't. And so, yeah, I think that's that's interesting that you caught you caught that because whenever I present it, I wonder if I should talk about that or not, because it always in my mind, I'm thinking someone's got to be thinking of this. Like, why does it look like that? Uh, so there you yeah, But we don't know yet. <laughs> but maybe there's, there's, not, there's no sensory. Uh, have, you, have you considered in that experiment the possibility that there are conflicting motivations? Since, you know, the animals are in a new context, 
you know, the motivation now is to investigate, right? But, you know, from all of a sudden, artificially, you activate the C-positive uh, neurons uh, that perhaps, you know, are retrieving that uh, aversive memory. But once you remove the excitation of those cells, then, you know, the animals still have the motivation of exploring the new context. I'm just wondering if, if in many of your experiments, uh, you could get perhaps even clearer uh, results if you tested the animals, for example, in a new context and give that kind of conflict. Can you comment on this? Yeah, I mean, we have, yeah, that's a good question. We haven't uh, done that. I'm not sure if anyone's done that where you put them maybe into environments where the, the animal could make a couple different responses and then see if you can bias uh, what they do in one way or another. Um, and that's a, yeah, that's a good, that actually is a, we wanted to do uh, that or we're planning to do an experiment like that, uh, maybe with the lever pressing and trace conditioning to see if we could, you know, get the animal to make a choice that told us they knew what was coming next or something like that with these, uh, with the stimulation of the CFOS positive cells, but but we haven't done we haven't done that yet. Um, one of the so one of the ways I've been <laughs> I remember Mark Mayford when uh, presenting with him at a meeting, and someone had asked him a similar question because they had done these experiments as well, and and he brought up a study I think it was a journal of neuroscience study where they had some it was an epileptic patient, and they were stimulating to look for the the uh, foci of the seizures, and they were in the medial temporal lobe. And the patient reported that when they were stimulating in one location, the uh, room would slowly transform into his favorite pizza place. And then the doctors became the workers at the pizza place. And then they turned the stimulation off and it gradually like went back to the hospital room. And so he knew he wasn't at the pizza place, so he didn't try to get a slice of pizza, right? He's, <laughs> he knew that for a while, it felt like he was at the pizza place, but now he was clearly in the hospital. And so that wasn't real. I don't know if something like that is happening with the mice, but Mark would talk about it like that. Like you're almost creating these little hallucinations, but then when they fade, you're like, Oh, I'm in a, I'm in this place and this place isn't bad. So they just go around exploring. Right. And so, I mean, that's a human example, but, and of course we don't know <laughs> exactly if that's what's going on with the, the mice, but the fact that, like you said, they keep exploring right away suggests that it's something they can tell the difference between where they are and where they just thought they were. <laughs> I think it's significant though, that there, that the sensory stimulation is not there for new learning. It's really just like that moment when you when you see a shadow and think, Oh, it's like a, something's happening around you. I mean, I've had that, we've all had that sensation, right? <laughs> yeah. Where then you're like, okay, wait, wait, wait. So, I mean, it's, yeah, I think it, so yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. They, it, it seems as if, you can kind of trick them for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but once right. that simulation is gone, the sensory cues take over and they, they're curious and they want to explore. I think there is something special about the artificial stimulation because even in the Tonegawa papers, when they condition the animal in a context, let's say they test the animal in context B without any stimulation, and then they test context B without any light, the animals show 80% freezing. But the artificial memory that they get yeah. with the combination of context and light is never going about 35% of freezing. So this artificial, there is something about the, the artificial memory can 
somehow create the memory, but at some level the animal knows, okay, this context resembles <laughs> somehow my fearful experience, but even the animal is completely aware. I don't think it's aware, but the animal perceives that it's not the same yeah. as when you don't have this artificial stimulation. So yeah, so we uh, we did it. <laughs> we so that bothered me too that the freezing is always pretty low. You can never get a, like a natural context will give you a lot more conditioning exactly than when you stimulate these cells. And we thought, okay, well, why could that? Why why would that be the case? I thought, well, you know the so when the animal explores, like we were just talking about, there's these beautiful temporal patterns, like this place cell fires and that one fires and that one fires. As they go through around, you get these sequences. Um, and that's what the processing looks like when they're learning. But then when you test them, right, you simultaneously turn all of those neurons on and make them fire at 20 hertz or 4 hertz in synchrony, which is not at all what they were doing when the animal was learning. And so we thought, oh, maybe it's just a generalization decrement. So when you're testing them, mm -hmm. you're not testing them with the same stimulus you train them with. So you always get decrement. So we did an experiment <laughs> where we randomly labeled cells, and then we paired stimulation of those cells with shock. Oh, that's cool. Then tested them later, and you get gangbuster freezing. <laughs> that's a really interesting experiment. matches testing. It looks like natural. Oh, if you make, so, okay, yeah, we thought we can't make optogenetics naturalistic, the stimulation, at least not right now. But we can make training artificial <laughs> by using optogenetics during training, and then you get them to match, and the behavior looks uh, much, much more like the natural freezing behavior. So I think this generalization decrement is at least partially one reason why you never get naturalistic levels of conditioning with uh, stimulation. That's very interesting. And I have a, just a general question because we are getting towards the end, right, Salma? What do you think the future for the field of emotional memory? And what are the the future questions, the 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 most important questions that need to be addressed. And yeah, I mean, so what we're interested in, well, I'm really interested in it. My graduate students are, uh, you know, a few years in now. Of course, there's a lot of anxiety with COVID and not being able to get into the lab. So they definitely don't want to hear new ideas and projects right now. They just want to, <laughs> you know, do their stuff that they've been working on. But, uh, but I definitely, you know, have been have tried a few times, even before COVID, uh, uh, to get them interested in something that I think is is fascinating, which is the interactions between uh, these defensive behaviors and other goal-directed behaviors. So most of the time, right, when you fear conditioning, there's nothing else for the, <laughs> for, I mean, the animal's in a box, but what else can it do? And so they freeze, but there's no, you know, other competing uh, responses, or at least goal-directed responses that they that they could make, and so um, I'm really interested in how these defensive behaviors will uh, interact in situations where there is some kind of conflict, because that's more uh, naturalistic. That usually is what ha happens out in the wild, uh, trying to get some food, and then oh no, there's this predator over here, and I want to get over there. So there's all these really interesting interactions going on potentially between hippocampus, amygdala, periaqueductal gray. And so that's one thing that I would like to look at. And so um, I, so I, ha well, I, <laughs> I have the equipment. I've even done some pilot studies where we're doing the, 
uh, where the animals are in there lever pressing for uh, food. And then we do the uh, conditioning in the background, fear conditioning in the background. So every once in a while, a tone comes on and um, it's paired with shock and so on and so forth. And it's pretty amazing because when, when you do it that way, you, uh, now I wonder if this has to do with our question earlier, you do get this sawtooth pattern where uh, they're pressing like crazy, the tone comes on, they stop and they freeze, and as soon as the tone goes off, they go right back to lever pressing. So for a brief period of time, there's an interaction. I want to make this response, but this thing is bad, so I'll hold off, and then I'll go back to doing what I was doing before. And so those are the sort of, that's the kind of the situation um, that I think would be interesting to look at. So we would see the fear conditioning system in action, but then also see it interacting with uh, the hippocampus, most likely the ventral hippocampus, which is, you know, I guess, these older theories of the hippocampus were all about behavioral inhibition. Um, but the hippocampus, uh, you know, want and, and other regions sort of motivating the animal to, you know, let's say go get food, uh, but in the presence of other stimuli that are saying, no, it's dangerous right now. And I think looking at those interactions uh, would be fascinating. And so maybe I can convince my next graduate student to... ...with contextual information as opposed to auditory cues. We can talk more offline if you like. <laughs> yeah, the, this was where I got into, it was kind of what Tomo was saying. Um, when you start doing, you saw the contextual experiments today, but um, if you wanted to, let's say, turn off the hippocampus, you know, at key moments of learning, well, you don't exactly know when they're learning the context, right? Because they're just, the cues are in the background. And and so we started doing trace conditioning because then we have a stimulus that we can control. Um, it still depends on the hippocampus. And now when we do these manipulations, we know exactly when to do them, right during the tone, right after the tone, um, so on and so forth. And so we picked up the trace conditioning stuff really because it matches well with things like optogenetics, recording as well. You have a stimulus, right, that you can look for. Uh, the photometry stuff we've been doing, again, you want to see, you want to you know, time lock everything to that stimulus and see what's going on. Um, I, if you have a second, can I tell you one interesting thing we did? <laughs> I was going to talk about it today, but I couldn't get there. Yeah, so this plenty was, of time. So we started using trace conditioning. So in trace conditioning, um, what happens is, uh, it's kind of so you you heard about the tone conditioning I told you where the tone comes on and then they get shocked. You don't need the hippocampus, but if there's a gap between the stimuli, like 20 seconds or so. So now the animal, like a tone turned on, but then it turned off and then nothing happened for 20 seconds. And then the animal gets the shock. In order to learn that, you do need the hippocampus. And so the predominant idea has been, well, that's because when the tone turns off, the hippocampus has a memory of it and it keeps it alive. Right. It's just reverberating around in the hippocampus. And so by the time the shot comes around, the hippocampus is still thinking about the tone. And that's how the animals are able to learn those two things. What well, we were reading a, a Tolman paper in uh, we had a whole memory meeting devoted to uh, cognitive maps uh, a couple quarters ago. And at the end of the one of the Tolman papers, I think it was the review, he talked about how so many things are learned after they happen. So an experience will happen and then you'll sit there and think, wait a minute, what just happened to me? And try to figure out, you know, what caused what, you know, beforehand. And so a lot of the learning might happen after the trial has ended. 
we thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Um, and there's some, uh, Isabel, as you know, there's this reverse replay that you'll get in the, if a rat runs down a track and you see the play cells, when it gets food, it goes backwards. Like it replays the path it just took. And so we thought, I wonder if that happens for trace conditioning. And so my student, uh, Kyle, uh, who we didn't have a chance to talk about his data today, he's done some experiments and that's what we find. So if you do a conditioning trial, but then silence the hippocampus afterwards for a few seconds, they can't learn. But if you do the learning trial, you know, wait two more minutes and inactivate the hippocampus, nothing happens. So we do think that actually there might be this sort of retrospective learning with trace conditioning that the hippocampus is involved in. Um, that we never, I never would have thought of doing that experiment before until we read the Tolman paper. But now it's another thing we're wondering, which is that, you know, in some of these tasks, after the aversive event happens, you know, does the hippocampus and the rest of the brain still continue to work on it and try to figure out, like, what the heck was that? <laughs> there was a noise and then that thing, I'm like, what? And it continues to work on it. And there may be a lot of learning that takes place after the, after the trial, which I think is really interesting. That is a very interesting idea because in the field uh, of play cells, you mentioned there is this phenomenon called the reverse replay. So when the animal stops, uh, the sequence of play cells that are active when the animal is navigating play, but in reverse order. Mm -hmm. And when those findings were first reported, people were, were wondering, right? Why in reverse order? Yeah. So maybe your results could give a solid explanation to why the replay happens in reverse order is because, you know, the animal is thinking backwards about the experiences that it has, they happened. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's really fascinating because, so the animals are able to learn, let's say when the delay is like 20 or 30 seconds, but you push it to like a minute. So the tone happened, but then a minute goes by or something, then they don't learn. And so we started to wonder like, is that too far for replay? Can reverse replay not go that far back in time for the animals? And then, you know, so like I can, I can put things together in the last 20 seconds, but you know, I think about my dog 20 minutes ago and it's already out of his mind. He's not thinking about it at all. And so, um, we have, uh, David Foster is now at Berkeley. And so I went down and presented this at his lab and we're desperately trying to uh, collaborate with him. So, cause he can record from hundreds and 200, 300 neurons simultaneously. And we want to do some of these tasks and look for uh, replay, reverse replay, and see if that might actually be mediating some of the, the learning in this case. That's very interesting. Such exciting stuff. But this is great. We could just go on and on. This is fantastic. And I really appreciate you playing along with us. And uh, hope you enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. And everyone, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks very much. Bye. All right. Thank you. Thank you.